Um, I go back on my word constantly with my kids. And before any of you that are not parents judge me, all parents do it. Constantly. I'm constantly going back on my word. And I don't mean to. It's never malicious. Here's the problem. My kids have a way better memory than I do. Their memory is great. My memory is not very good. So my kids, specifically my daughter, Brooklyn, will ask me all the time to do stuff. Sometimes she'll be like, hey, can we play a game tonight? Hey, can we watch a movie tonight? Hey, can we go get a dessert tonight? And all the stuff I want to do, I want to play games with my kids. I never want to tell them no. I want to do all those fun things. So a lot of times they say, yeah, sure. Just remind me later. And then she is getting really smart because she knows that there's something that I'll never say no to, and that's snowballs. If she ever asks me to go get snowballs, I will go get them. Now, some of you don't know what snowballs are. They're not snow cones. There's a huge difference between snowballs and snow cones. Here's the difference. Snow cones suck. Snowballs are awesome, okay? That's the difference. Snow cones are the ones you got to, like, scrape with your teeth, you know, that don't eat those. Snowballs with some marshmallow on top, awesome. And my daughter loves them. So a lot of times we'll wake up, we'll be eating breakfast. She's like, hey, can we get snowballs tonight? I'm like, sure, honey. You know I love snowballs. I'll always say yes to snowballs. I want snowballs right now. We'll do that tonight. And then tonight happens, and we have to eat dinner. Then we got to do the dishes. And then uh, we got to um, give them baths because they're always disgusting at the end of the day. So we're doing all this. And all of a sudden, it's like 8, 8.30, which is their bedtime. And then Brooklyn will say, well, hey, well, we're, we're getting snowballs, right? And I'm like, oh, Brooklyn, I forgot. We've, it's too late now. We've, we've been doing too much stuff. And then she says what always hurts me every single time. She always says this, but, Dad, you promised. I'm like, oh. Listen, I'm sorry that I have a terrible memory. Don't, I, it hurts me every time. Let me ask you a question. In that situation, how much do my words matter to her? The fact that I told her I would, does that actually matter to her at this point? I, could I say, hey, Brooklyn, I know, I, I know we're not getting snowballs, but at least I said we would, and now that gave you a hope that we're going to get it. At least I said that, right? She, wouldn't, she didn't care about what I said. All she knows is I said we would, and we didn't do it. That's all, that's all that matters to her. The only thing that matters to her is that she does not have a snowball in her hands, that my word means nothing if we don't actually do it. See, my word and our words are not enough. Anyone can say anything, but it's about whether you follow through with what you say. You can say anything. You can have a friend that says, yeah, I'd love to help you move. Yeah, just let me know. Then all of a sudden you get that U-Haul and you pull it up, say, hey, well, I'm ready to move. Like, well, I can't help today. And all of a sudden... Does it matter that they said they would help if they didn't help? No, their words, I'm glad they said it, but I would rather them actually help. Maybe you're, you're going out with, with your friends, some of your girlfriends or your guy friends, and they, or they say they promise they're going to take you out. It's like, hey, we haven't hung out in a while. I would love to hang out with you. I promise we'll, I'll, I'll hit you up soon and we'll hang out. And then they never hit you up. Like, yeah, I'm glad they promised it, but I'd rather them actually hang out with me. Uh, maybe your spouse says, you know what? I promise I'll take care of this. I promise I'll fix this. I promise I will wash these dishes. I promise I will do this. And then they never do it. Does the promise matter if they don't follow through with what they said? Maybe your child promises to clean their room. That's great. My kids promise to clean all the time. They rarely do it. I don't care if they promise it. I want them to actually do it. Maybe your boss promised that you will have that promotion. Hey, you're going to get that promotion. You're going to get a raise. You get a 10% raise. Just, just wait a little longer. And that promotion never comes. You don't care about your boss's word. You want the promotion. You want the action behind it. We know that our words don't mean anything unless there's action attached to it. We know that. I don't have to convince you that. You understand that? I understand that. We want action. We are glad people have good intentions. We're glad people say certain things. But if they don't follow through with it, I don't care what they say. We already know that. But for some reason, 
This idea that our words only matter if action is behind it, the idea that we apply to every aspect of our life, for some reason, we tend not to apply it to our faith. Because we think, well, God loves me. He loves me just the way I am. He forgave me. That's what grace is. And it's not about what I do. It's about what he has done. So I might say certain things, but if I mess up, who cares? Because God forgives me. And listen, I don't disagree with any of that. I don't disagree with grace. We need to understand that grace is real and that we have grace. And grace, we cannot earn it. It's not about what we do. I get all of that. But here's what I find in church world, because I've been in church world for a while. Here's what I find in my own life. That at times, I will abuse God's grace, and I'll abuse his forgiveness in my life to give me permission to do whatever I want to do. Like, you know what? I, God gives me grace and forgives me. So it's not about what I do, so I'm just going to keep doing what I know what I said. I know that I said I was going to do this. I know I say that I love him, but, but he forgives me no matter what, and he has grace for me no matter what. But we have been talking to the book of James, and James chapter 2 specifically makes something perfectly clear, and this is going to be our only point today. James makes it perfectly clear. Actions indicate faith. The actions we have indicate the faith that you have. So we've been, Michelle started this series last week, and if you were not here or you did not watch it um, at home, I highly recommend you going back. Michelle is already a very talented preacher, but she really set this up really well, the book of James. And James, if you don't know the book of James, James is written by uh, the, the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, James came to faith after Jesus' resurrection, not before, and after that, he wrote this book. And the reason why I love the book of James so much is that it's only five chapters, it's a very easy read, and it's so practical. So I want to encourage you throughout this series to continue to read the book of James with us. So if you haven't done it yet, you can catch up. Before next week, I want to encourage you to read chapter 3 before we talk about chapter 3 next week. We're going to talk about chapter 2 this week. But James here, he is writing not to people who don't know Jesus. He's writing to followers of Jesus. He's writing to them, and he's writing plainly. That's why I like it, because he is blunt. He is harsh at times. He writes plainly. And Michelle talked about this last week as well, but the book of James gets criticism because some people call it legalistic. And that means it's all about what you do, your actions, that um, it's all about black and white. Here's what you need to do. Here are the rules you need to have in order to embrace grace. Um, even Martin Luther, some of you may know who that is uh, if you've ever taken a, a, a theology class, Martin Luther even had trouble reconciling James' letter with Paul's writings because Paul talks so much about grace. And then in the book of James, we don't see a lot of talk of grace. But here's one thing that we understand before we get into James chapter 2. James is writing to people who were not only not legalistic, they were so far from legalistic that they believed in Jesus, but their life looked just the same, if not worse, than the pagans of that time that did not believe in Jesus. He's writing to people that say they're Christians but don't have any action behind it. And Paul, even though he talks a lot about grace, Paul never spoke against holy living. He encouraged us that we need to live an appropriate way. In fact, Paul encouraged holy living. But there's always this tension that we're always battling between the grace that we have through Jesus and works. And Michelle talked about that last week. But here's one thing that I want to get perfectly clear right off up front, and then I'm not going to really touch on it much more. Everything I say today is going to come across fairly harsh. It's going to come across as, um, at times, just plainly blunt. That's because how James wrote it. Uh, but I want to make something perfectly clear. We cannot earn salvation. We know that, but I want to make sure we, it's said for me that we understand that. 
Grace is a gift that we cannot earn. We cannot earn salvation. What you do does not give you salvation. I am not talking to the person that's watching today or the person that's here that isn't a follower of Jesus. Listen, you do not have to do a lot of things in order to meet Jesus. Jesus meets you right where you are. Grace meets you right where you are. But we need to understand that our actions mean something, that we should be doing things, that actions indicate faith. What you do shows what you believe. What you do does not save you, but what you do shows that you believe in who saves you. And that's what James talks about. So as I talk about things, and you're going to feel a tension of like, man, this seems really almost legalistic. This seems really harsh. Understand, we are under the umbrella of grace first. We are under that umbrella first. But it is important to understand that actions indicate faith. So if you have your Bibles or your Bible apps, open up to James chapter 2. We're going to be kind of bouncing around a little bit in James chapter 2. Um, and it'll be up on the screen as well. James chapter 2, verse 1 starts with this. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, do not show favoritism is a sin and that God hates. What is favoritism? Here's what favoritism is. It's pretty simple. It's treating someone like they are more important than someone else solely because of some kind of circumstance, whether it's their class, whether it's their wealth, whether it's their reputation, whether it's their fame. That's what favoritism is. And, Paul, and uh, James says, do not treat anyone with favoritism. Have you ever been treated with favoritism before? It can be like addicting. I, I kind of like it. Like um, I was in a band for a long time and when we first started our band, we were never very good, but when we first started, we were really, really not good. Ask my dad, he went to all the shows. We were terrible. So we, one of our first big shows was we opened for a Christian rapper named John Rubin. Does anyone know who John Rubin is? Frank does, a couple people, okay. Um, he's not that popular at this point, but back then in 2003, four, five-ish, um, he was actually pretty popular, especially for Christian artists. He would uh, play at Creation, he would play all these big festivals, he would do worldwide tours, he'd sell a lot of records, um, and he was coming to this church, and there was a guy that went to that church that convinced them that my band was also a big deal and we should open for John Rubin. Little spoiler, we are, we're not, never a big deal. We're, we're not good. So they asked us to play. We're like, yeah, sure, we play. And we got there. They treated us like we were this major act, like John Rubin. We got there. They gave us a little badge. We're like, well, this is cool. We never had a, like, backstage badge before. This is cool. So we got that badge. And they're like, just so you know, we're going to have a, a bodyguard right here. No one can get through here. So you can just go up there and hang out because you got your badge. Like, okay, thanks. Um, so we go back there. And we go up. And there's drinks everywhere. There's soda. There's water. There's there's dinner they provide, which we barely got dinner when we went anywhere. And, and if we did, it was pizza, not this place. It was steak and really good food. We're like, this is awesome. We were like, and they, we would walk around, and a lot of people would treat us like we were this big act. Like, hey, are you, are you in this band? Are you? They're like, yeah, that's me. And I'm starting to like, I'm a three, so I kind of like this. I'm like, oh, this is, yeah, I'm a big deal. I, I stood in the, in the green room because I'd never been in a green room before, so I wanted to set, act all important. Favoritism is addicting. And I've been in a lot of different times. By the way, that show, like 20 people showed up to that show. There was nobody there. They didn't need bodyguards, that's for sure. Um, but... I've been, I've been a guest speaker at like a children's camp before and they treated me really special and I kind of liked it. Um, I helped with VBS before and all the kids would ask for my autograph. <laughs> it was ridiculous, but I kind of liked it. Like, it's, it's weird. Favoritism can be addicting when you're treated differently. Favoritism is, is addicting. Being treated like you are more important, it can feed your ego. 
It, it can do that. But also, treating others like they are more important can also make you feel important as well. Like that, I see that person as more important, so because of that, I, I'm going to treat them like it, and it makes me feel good. That can happen. But James tells us simply, favoritism is wrong. Skip it down to verse 8. He says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Convicted by the law as lawbreakers. See, there are only two distinctions in this world. There's God and there's us. There's God, the almighty God, who is holy, who is perfect, who is beyond our comprehension, who deserves all of our praise. We have that God, and then there's us. But what favoritism does is it says, there's God, there's us, then there's a small select that's in between. It's a little more important, that's a little better. That's what favoritism is. You're treating someone else that you deem more important as more important, and what you're also doing is treating people that you don't deem as important with that, that you're not treating them with the value that they deserve. And then James gives us a big warning on favoritism in verse 12. It says, Speaking, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. See, I think we forget this. I know I do. We forget this times where Scripture tells us that there will be a day of judgment for each of us. There will be a day of judgment, a day that we are judged not by simply what we said, but by what we did. And the spoiler alert is we're all going to be found guilty. We're all lawbreakers. We all have sinned. But James tells us that if you show favoritism, you are judging someone without mercy. That means you are judging someone without compassion or sympathy or grace. And when you judge without mercy... James says, you're going to be judged also without mercy. And it's, that almost sounds like a threat, but it's not a threat. It's God revealing what you actually believe. It's God saying, do you really understand the gospel? Do you really understand the mercy that's been shown to you? Because if you truly understood the mercy that's been shown to you and that I love everyone, I show that mercy to everybody, you wouldn't show favoritism to anybody else. You wouldn't judge without mercy because you would understand what mercy is. When you show favoritism, you're living a life that doesn't reflect the grace that you proclaim to believe in. Remember, your actions indicate your faith. And then James changes from a specific example to just plain, blunt words that I want to prepare you for. Starting in verse 14. James says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save James is writing about this idea of talking versus doing, this concept that we all agree practically is important. This isn't about what you say, it's about what you do. See, here's one thing James makes perfectly clear. God doesn't care about what you say you believe. He cares about what you show you believe. We need to understand that. He, who cares if you say you believe in Jesus, but your life doesn't reflect it? James says that that faith that says, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but your life doesn't show any example of it and you don't live it out, what that faith does, that faith cannot save you. That's a faith that talks but doesn't show what you believe. See, talk without action is not admirable. It's detestable. He continues on in verse 15. He says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, 
go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. That's some pretty blunt words from James. Imagine this. Imagine you lost everything. You lost your house. You lost all your money. You couldn't eat. You're stuck and you were in a terrible situation. You didn't know where you're going to sleep that night. You didn't know how you're going to get your next meal. You were in a terrible situation. And so your last desperate attempt, you called me and said, Eric, I, I, I hate to do this. I don't want to be a burden, but I don't have anything. I've lost everything. Could you please help me? I, I, have, I don't know what I'm going to eat tonight. I don't know what I'm going to sleep tonight. Could you please help me? And what if my response was, you know what? I'm going to help you right now. Just listen up. Keep your chin up. See ya. And that's all I did. You wouldn't care about my encouraging word, would you? Say, no, I need help now, and you're not willing to take any action to help me? How horrific is that? In the same way, James uses the strongest language possible to say that our faith, if it's not accompanied by action, is not just a weak faith. It's dead. You don't have it. It's completely gone. Action indicates faith. If you do not have any action, James would conclude it is because you do not have any faith. That's what James says. See, some of you, I understand, while I'm saying this or while, I'm at, while you're watching at home, are starting to feel that tension, right? But it's not about what I do. You're starting to get a little annoyed with me and with what James is saying. Like, who are you to tell me that my faith is dead if I don't have action? I'm not a doer. Listen, you're a pastor. Of course, you do all this stuff. I'm not, you don't know what I do in my private life. I'm not a doer like that. I don't do a lot of stuff. Or maybe you'd even say it like this uh, in verse 18. Um, Maybe you'd say it like this. But someone, someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God good. Even Even the demons believe that and shudder. See, listen, I'm glad that you say you have faith and you do all that stuff. I'm going to just show you my faith. I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to show you by my actions because belief is not enough. Says, even the demons believe that. See, I want you to believe in Jesus. I think it's important for you to believe that there is a higher power and that, there is, and that God sent his son for us through Jesus and saved us. I want you to believe that. But if you simply believe it and it doesn't result in any action, congratulations, you're on par with the devil. But James says, actions indicate faith. Then James gives some ex- practical examples in the rest of chapter two, but he concludes in verse 26 with just a bomb. He says this, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. He uses that word dead multiple times in this chapter. So if the body without the spirit is dead, so is your faith without your deeds or without what you do, without your actions, because your actions indicate faith. Um, I read a book by Ed Stetzer. It was uh, called Christians in the Age of Outrage. And um, you might have heard this debate before, but there's a debate that happens that when I went to seminary, when um, I've been at conferences, that you hear this all the time, that you hear that the, the Christian church is dying. You may have heard that before. This idea that um, church is dying, the church attendance is dying, less people are going to church than ever before, that, that everything is going downhill, and you kind of feel that tension. I've learned that. I've, I've talked all about that. I, I've heard all that. Um, so let me, let me do a little, uh, little, little poll from the audience. I'm going to need your guys' help with this. What would be your guess 
in the 1940s, what would be your guess percentage-wise of how many people attended church on a weekly basis, pretty much every week? What would be your guess? Just throw out a number, any number you think of. 78%, so really high. The most people attended church on a weekly basis, 1940. Okay, now let's go to 1970. What would you guess would be the weekly attendance in the 1970s, people went to church on a weekly basis? What would be your guess? 65%, okay, so when 70, it's going a little bit downhill, it's still really high. And then in the 1990s, what would be your guess, percentage-wise, people went to church on a consistent basis? 50%, okay, so we're at 70, what would we do, 65, 50, so we're slowly declining, but it's still pretty high. And then what would be your guess today, the amount of people that go to church on a weekly basis, what would be your guess? 15, 15% so really low. Okay, so here's some stats that, according to the Gallup group and according to the Barna group, here's some stats when it comes to church attendance, as in, that's in every week, weekly attending church. In the 1940s, 37% of Americans went to church every single week. 37%. In 2015, 36% go to church every single week. So wait, do you feel that? Like, we all assumed that the attendance was going like this in our culture because it feels like we're a less Christian culture. But the stats tell us on a weekly basis, it's basically the exact same since the 1940s. So what's the difference? And Ed Setzer would say it's the cultural divide. Here's, here's how he put it. I'm gonna, we'll put a graph up on the screen as well. I'll explain this graph to you. He separates the, the normal average American into four different categories. There's the non-Christians, cultural Christians, the congregational Christians, and the convictional Christians. Let me explain these. Non-Christians would be people that are not religious, that do not confess to be a follower of Jesus, and that or, or atheists or secular or whatever. Cultural Christians are the people that claim to be a Christian, but that's it. They never attend church. They, when they take their polls, they, they put, I'm a Christian, but nothing else. They don't show it in their actions. They don't um, do anything else. They never attend church. The congregational Christians, um, these are Christians that attend every once in a while. They attend on Easter. They attend on Christmas Eve. They might come to four, five services a year, and that's about it. Congregational, they come every once in a while. They, can, they claim to be Christians, but they come every once in a while. And then there's the convictional Christians. These are the people that their conviction and their life fuels them. And here is why we feel like that there's a cultural, that, that Christianity in our culture is declining when it really isn't church attendance-wise. Back in the 1940s in the past, right here was the mainstream, convictional Christians, congregational Christians, and cultural Christians. That was the mainstream in America, that it was popular to say you were a Christian, and it was popular to say that you have these certain beliefs. Then there was a divide, and then there were all the other people, the non-Christians. But now... What we've seen happening is this cultural divide has shifted, where the convictional Christians are by themselves, and the non-Christians, cultural Christians, and and congregational Christians are the mainstream that are all about the same, that act the same way, even though they say they believe certain things. So here's what Ed Stetzer is basically saying. Here's what he's saying, and here's my point, which we already know this. The reason why we feel like there are less Christians today than there ever were, the reason why we feel that way is because we are seeing people's actions more clearly today than ever before. Because there's a divide now. Back in the 40s, there was no divide. So everyone was kind of lumped in the same. But now there's that divide. So we're seeing actions more clearly than ever before. We believe the lie that Christianity is declining when really church attendance is exactly the same as it's ever been. It's just we're not the mainstream anymore. So the actions are telling us something else. It feels less because we are seeing what is, was always there, a lack of action. 
That lack of action was always there over there. It, just, it was just mainstream. We're seeing that now. You may mark Christian on whatever survey you take. Awesome, that's great. You may tell people that you believe in God. Great, I want you to believe in God, and I believe you should believe in God. But God would say, I'm glad you do all that, but what are you doing? Like, what actions are you taking? Like, what ways are you living that's different than everybody else? What are you actually doing? If the answer is nothing, I don't care what you say. I want to see the actions that show that you believe in the grace of God. Actions indicate faith. So I'm going to close with a couple examples here. Some of you that are in the room that are married, I'm glad that you're married. I'm glad you say you love your spouse. Glad you do it. What does your actions show? Because if your actions don't show it, I don't care what you say. Your spouse doesn't care if you say I love you every once in a while. They care about how you treat them. Let me talk to some of the wives that are watching or the wives that are here. How do you treat your husband? Do you talk about them whenever you're with your friends? Talk about all the things they don't do? Do you always bug them about things you do around the house? You might say you love them, but your actions indicate it. Men, how do you treat your spouse? How do you treat your wife? Because I know so many guys that say they love their wife and then treat her like crap. I don't care what you say. She doesn't care what you say. She cares about your actions. What about your kids? Every parent wants to be a good parent. Every time you have a kid, no parent decides, yeah, I'm just not gonna care about this kid. Every parent wants to be a great parent. No one ever says, I'm not. Every parent says, I love my kid. Every parent does that. Everyone says that. But do you actually show that? Do your actions show it? Or are you still trying to live your college days? Are you still trying to live for yourself first? Will you make time for them when you have the time? Listen, your kids, just like my kids, don't care what I say. They want my presence. They want me there. Every parent wants to be a good parent. The difference between good parents and bad parents, I was a student pastor for a long time. The difference between good parents and bad parents is action. It's not about words, because every parent says the right thing. But it's your actions that follow it. And what about your lifestyle? I'm glad if you're watching or if you're here, I'm glad if you would say you believe in Jesus, I'm glad you confess that. But how does your lifestyle show that? Let me give you a news flash, and this is something I have been working with the past two weeks that I've been working with ever since I've been doing this and I've been feeling convicted about. How does your life look any different than any of, friends, any of your friends that say they don't believe in God? If you're right now thinking, how does it look different? That should be a red flag. Your actions indicate faith. Let me remind you, it's not about what you do. What you do is not gonna earn you a better slot in heaven. What you do is not going to save you. It's not about what you do. But what you do shows what you believe. So if you aren't willing to change any of your lifestyle, if you aren't willing to change anything to follow Jesus, then maybe it's because you believe him on the other side of the cultural divide. Maybe it's because you believe him conveniently. Maybe it's because you believe him because your family told you you need to believe him. Maybe it's because you do that, but you don't actually truly believe it because your actions indicate your faith. It doesn't save you, but it shows what you believe. Let me be as blunt as James was. Without actions, 
you do not have faith. I can't be more blunt than that. You do not have faith because your actions, your actions don't, your faith is not there because your actions, again, that's grace. But your actions show what you believe. James would say, if you don't have any actions behind what you say you believe, then your faith is dead. It's not weak, it's not struggling, it is dead. That's what James would say. That's how James calls it. But I have good news for you. We have a God who's in the business of bringing dead things back to life. Just because it's dead doesn't mean it's a lost cause. Just because you haven't felt those actions, you haven't changed your life, doesn't mean that there's no chance for you. So here's what I wanna do. For some of you that are in this room that you're feeling that tension, maybe it's in your marriage, maybe it's in your parenting, maybe it's in your lifestyle, maybe it's in your habits, whatever that tension is that you're starting to feel that you're like, I don't know, there's no actions behind what I say. What What I'm hoping and what I've been praying about all week is that you leave here not feeling good. It's my prayer. I don't think you should always feel good after you leave church. I want the Holy Spirit, I've been praying the Holy Spirit would convict you right now to a point where you leave and go, you know what, I need to do something about this. You can't just sit here and keep saying, yeah, I believe, yeah, I believe, and then not, not changing. I'm gonna take a step of action. I want this to be a wake-up call for some of you. Because listen, if you're, if you're in a marriage that's struggling, I want this to be a wake-up call for you. Because it can go quickly downhill before all of a sudden you know where you're going. Parenting, you only have so much time when it comes to your kids. When your lifestyle, we don't know how much time we have on this earth. I want this to be a wake-up call. I hope it convicts some of you watching or some of you here. Here's the other people I want to talk to. Some of you, while I've been talking, didn't really feel convicted. You actually felt good. Yeah. Actions do indicate faith. That's why I live a certain way. That's how I take these actions. And listen, I'm glad you take those actions. But when we start to feel good about a message like this, we start to have this little inclination that we are a little better than everybody else. And you know what that is? Favoritism. It's the first thing James talked about. Favoritism. Don't fall for the trap. All of us have room to grow. All of us have things we need to be working on. No marriage is perfect. No parenting is perfect. No lifestyle is perfect. We all have stuff we, mean, we need to be moving and trying to look closer to God so we can live a holy life. Not so that we can earn his salvation because we can never do it, but because he gave us salvation and because we truly believe it. If you believe it, your actions will show it. So I'm gonna just give you a little bit of time just to pray to yourself. Some quiet time between you and God, whether you're at home right now, with the kids in the other room bouncing around or whether you're right here. I wanna give you this opportunity, an opportunity that some of us don't ever have, this alone, quiet time with God. And I want you to ask God right now, what are the things you want me to change in my life? Because I promise you, if you ask it, he will show you. Things will come up. Things will happen. You will start to feel it. So I wanna give you the time right now to figure out what that is. Ask God to convict you right now for what it is and what steps you need to take. And then we'll pray together. Take this time to pray.
Dear God, I thank you for being a God that is moving in our lives, that is constantly at work. A God who comes to our level, who comes for us, and no matter what we've done in our past, no matter what we do in the future, that you will always love us. And we don't have to do anything to earn your grace, but that we just simply have to surrender to you. Thank you for being that God who gives us an amazing love and hope and grace. But dear God, I pray that we don't abuse that grace, but we allow that grace to enter into our lives so that it will move us towards action. Not so that we can have a higher slot, not so that we can earn it, but because we believe in you, I pray that you convict us to move to look more like you. Because that is the best way for us to live. To have a radical love for the people in our lives, to have a radical love for our neighbors, to have a radical love for the people that are struggling. That's the way we are called to live. And dear God, I pray for the people at home, the people right here, that, and for myself, that you point out as clear as possible whatever that thing is that we need to start working on. Help us to see the path forward as clearly as possible so we can grow and look more like you so that we can live out our faith through our actions. Not because we're better, not because we can earn it, but because we understand who you are and what you did for us. God, I pray Do you push us the way you want us to, the way you want us to move. Give us the courage to take whatever that step is that we need to take. That we don't just hear this message and go, great, I believe it, and then walk away and not doing anything else differently, but this have this moment, this opportunity to be the day that we step forward differently, following you. In your son's name, amen.